Amen. I don't know about you, but after a long, hard day, there's nothing better than getting home and having a nice meal provided for you. Now, that doesn't happen very often in my house because I'm married to Claire. She's not here, that's the truth. She's not a cook. She's many things, my wife. She's not a cook. She's not a cook. We've just about got her to scrambled eggs and toast. You can ask the kids if you don't believe me. But it's nice. On Friday, I took the kids down to um, Otford Manor, Oak Hall, um, part of their, their, their school. It was a school meet-up for their, their, their school that they do. And we travelled down on a Friday night, a Friday afternoon. We set off at 2 o'clock, and then we faced the M25. Oh. Oh. So it took us about just under three hours to get to the M25. It then took us three hours to negotiate the M25. Absolute torture. So by the time we reached our destination, we're absolutely wrecked. First thing we want to do is get something to eat. So we went for a nice Nando's. Don't feel that sorry for us. But a nice meal can make you feel better. This morning we're going to have a look at a meal I think is one of the greatest meals that takes place in Scripture. And the lesson that the Lord teaches through this meal is profound. It's profound. We're going to see how the Lord deals with his disciples and ultimately prepares a meal for them. Now, we've already read verse 14 of chapter 21 that tells us this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was risen from the dead. So, again, the resurrection of Christ is pivotal to all that we believe. So Paul unpacks in Corinthians. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are of men most miserable. And, and the Christ appeared to many people in different times. This is the third time that he's making this appearance to his followers, um, to the disciples here, at least to this, this, this group. And every time that Jesus makes an appearance, it has a purpose. Every time. Every time. It's not random. It's not just on a whim. Everything that Jesus did was according to a divine purpose and a divine plan. Every encounter that is revealed in the Word of God, Jesus met that person for a purpose. It wasn't accidental. The things that are recorded in Scripture aren't incidental or accidental. So Jesus appears to these disciples and, and he uses the meal to minister to them, to teach them something about themselves and more importantly, about himself and how that relationship works. It's beautiful. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to have a look through this and we're going to see what Jesus is doing and how he gently corrects the attitudes and the internal thinking and thought process of these disciples and helps them see who he is, who they are, and how these two things interplay. So important in the Christian life. So important. So let's work through it. And first of all, we want to have a look at these men upon the sea. If you look at verse 2 there, it tells us who we're dealing with. We've got these um, band of disciples, seven of them here. We've got Simon Peter. It says they were together, Simon Peter, Thomas, and Nathaniel, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Now here they are, they're gathered, they're gathered at the, the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee. If you've been to Israel, 
you, you know, you can picture what this looks like. Um, if you haven't been, I'm sure you've seen pictures. This is an actual picture from the Sea of Galilee. This is, this is, this is um, Capernaum looking down the Sea of Galilee. You call it a sea, it's not a sea, it's a lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee because it displays sea-like qualities. Because it's, it's so low and it's got these surrounding mountains, the winds come over and furrow down. And you can, you can Google this and look at it and go for, look at the waves on the Sea of Galilee and you'll see the conditions can get like a sea. So that, that helps us with some of the, the narratives in the gospel story when the, you know, the boat's in trouble and the disciples are panicking. You say, well, how does that happen in the lake? That's never happened at uh, uh, Rudyard for me. <laughs> well, here it's different. It's different. So the disciples had gone back. It tells us the Sea of Tiberias. That's just the Roman name for the Sea of, of Galilee, Gennesaret. And uh, I want you to notice that first of all, and, and this might not be a apparent from just reading it, but when you put a little context and a little bit of chronology in place, you'll see that these disciples are out of the will of the Lord. They're not where they should be. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28 and verse 10. Because here's the truth. The Lord had given them specific instructions. Matthew 28 and verse 10. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night, stolen away while we slept. If this come to the governor's ears, ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went into Galilee, notice this, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. They went into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. The Amplified Bible states it this way. This will help. Now the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed and made appointment with them. That's what that word is in the Greek, that appointed. Specific moment in time, an appointment. So the disciples have been given a appointment with Jesus and the appointment with Jesus was on the mountaintop that's where they were to be but when we get along and the Holy Spirit shines the light in the the journey of these disciples a little bit later on we find them where on the Sea of Galilee in the shore they're not on the mountain they're down by the shore and actually what have they done they've come back to what they know so I had a little bit of sanctified imagination in there and what I'm saying to you is I think that these disciples weren't in the place that they should be maybe they got impatient maybe they were waiting where they should be and the Lord didn't turn up and they decided to go and do something else because the Lord's timing wasn't their timing now how often does that happen to us how often do we think like that Lord you're not working to my time I'm going to go and do something else What happens? Chapter 21 of John, verse 3. Simon Peter said unto them, I 
go fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. And they went forth, entered into the ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. So I was, what I think has happened here is they just don't know what to do. They're without Jesus. For over three years, just over three years, he's been with them, hasn't he? Ministering to them, directing them and leading them and correcting them and showing them the way to go. Now he has uh, you know, been crucified. The disciples have gone out, but he's appeared to them again. He has risen. And he says, go to the mountain. Wait for me there. And the disciples just get a little bit frustrated, maybe. And Peter, the impulsive one, the leader of the group, says, let's just go fishing. Now, this isn't sport. This isn't a hobby. This was their life. Who were they before Christ called them into the ministry? Fishermen. So what they're doing is going back to what they know. How often is that our default position? Honestly, church, that when things aren't going the way we want them to go in the Lord, we just fall back into our default position of the way we used to do things. I know I do. When I get stressed and whatever, rather than changing the pathways of how I think and move towards the Lord, I, I can fall back into my old tendencies. Stressful habits, coping mechanisms, whatever it may be. For me, it used to be alcohol, drugs. Now I've discovered, as my waistline reveals, <laughs> oi, <laughs> is, is that when I'm stressed, I overeat. Who knew? But I've discovered that. I used to, honestly, I'm not bad. I used, to, I used to laugh at women Generally women, I'm not being sexist here, but just in my world at that time, I used to laugh at women that when they were stressed or you know, they, they, they'd been dumped by their fella or whatever, they would watch a movie and eat loads of ice cream. I'm like, what's that about? It's quite in the drink. It's a, for me now, it's a stress mechanism. But what, what is it? I'm falling back to old things. And these disciples fell back to old things. They didn't have patience. Now, patience is a virtue, and we lack patience. We live in a world that is trying to wipe patience off the dictionary, off the map, off your psyche, because we live in the on-demand society. Waiting for something? Outrageous. We want it now, 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 now. So the disciples are in a place where I think they're a bit impatient. They're, you know, what's the Lord doing? You know, he's, he's not here. What, we should, what do we do? Well, let's fall back into what we know. Galilee in the Hebrew can mean district, but it also means circle. And I think that's very interesting here. Because these fellows have come full circle. They've come right back to where they were when the Lord called them. Full circle. And notice in verse 3 that they've come back to self-effort. This is not spirit-led. This is flesh-led. How do I know that it's flesh-led? Because the Bible tells us that they went forth, entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. What does nothing mean? Does it mean one fish? Does it mean two fish? Half a fish? 
A welly boot. Shopping trolley. Nothing. Now, again, these are not amateurs. You have to understand this. These are professional fishermen. And they didn't just go out in one run. All night. Nothing. What's happening? The Lord is teaching them something. The sovereign God who created everything, who is over everything, watches on as these disciples try and feed themselves, provide for themselves, provide security, both money and food. This is their livelihood they're going back to. They've been called into a new life. And they're going back into the old life. And they go out in the Sea of Galilee and they go to the fishing spots that have served them time and time and time again. The trusted parts of that lake where they know there's fish. They may not be the best quality fish, but at least they'll get fish. Nothing. Why? Because the Lord's looking down and as they get to the fish, the Lord moves the fish. They move to the, well, there's fish over there. The Lord moves the fish. The Lord's in control. This is the sovereignty of God. Now we can look at this and we can have this bird's eye view of what's going on here and we can see that God's sovereign. But God hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. Sometimes when we're out there and we're trying to fill the void, provide for ourselves, do what we can do, the Lord just keeps moving it away. And we never reach it, touch it. Why can't I get back to where I was all those years ago? Well, Lord, keep moving away. Because he's in control. These guys, fishing all night, and they catch nothing. Why? Because they're not where the Lord wanted them to be. You know, he spent all that time teaching them that all they needed was him. And even if it looked like he wasn't there, he was there. We talked about the, you know, the, the boat in the storm and the, at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep and they're like, what are you doing? Do you not care? It's a test. And the trials and the troubles that come along in life, and they do come, they're a test. What are you going to do? Run to the old or are you going to forge new pathways, new processes, new thoughts in him? So there we have the man upon the shore, which leads us into the man beside the shore. So we have the man on the sea, sorry, and then we have the man beside the shore. Look at verse 4 of chapter 21. But when the morning was now come, so these guys have been at it all night. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. So Jesus is on the shore. The disciples are on the sea. Now, the sea is a picture of the world. It's also a picture of the troubles of the world. And they're out there, and Jesus is on the shore. And they see a man, but they can't quite make out who he is. They're so busy, caught up in work and self-effort that they can't see the Savior because of the distance they are away from him, both physically and spiritually. 
He was a blurred figure to them. Now, let me ask the question. What's your view of Jesus this morning? What's your view of him? And what I mean by that is, can you truly see him? Isaiah in chapter number 6 remembers the day that King Uzziah died. And then he says, I saw the Lord seated upon his throne, high and lifted up. That's a vision of Christ that we should have. It's Christ upon that throne. The Gospels tell us that. So my question to you this morning is, how do you view Jesus? Is he bright and crystal clear in your life? Is he, is he close to you? Or is there a bit of distance that's crept in? Are you in a place where you're so caught up in life and the trials and the troubles and the worries and the excesses and the anxiety and everything else that goes along of living in a fallen world as fallen people that you don't see Christ, that he's blurred? Maybe you've no vision at all. You can't even see a man upon the shore. And I'll tell you this morning that there is a man there calling you, the man Christ Jesus. But for the believer, is, you know, is he crystal clear? Can you see him for who he is? Sovereign, supreme, overall, above all, beyond all, yet willing to be here. The disciples are out struggling, self-effort, and they can't see him. They can't see him. And Jesus stands by the shore, and notice what he says in verse number uh, Five, then Jesus said unto them, children, have you any meat? They answered, no. Obviously, this is a rhetorical question. Jesus knows the answer. He's not surprised by these events. He's over these events. And he says to them, have you any fruit for your labor? What have you caught? No, nothing is the reply. Have you caught any fish? Have you anything for all the effort that you've put in? The answer is no. That's heartbreaking, I think. Because we're going to see what the message of the Savior is and what he's really teaching them. But here's the thing. For the believer... For those that are born again in Christ, one day, all of us will have to stand before the Lord face to face. At that point, we'll have no sin. So we'll not be able to lie our way out of these things. (laughs) And the Lord is going to say, child, do you have any meat? Have you anything? Not the stuff that's done in the flesh. That's wood, stubble, and hay. That'll burn away. But the stuff that's done in the spirit. It's C.C. Stud, isn't it, that says, only one life uh, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We'll all have to answer that question. What are we going to say? It's my prayer that no believer should come before the Lord and say nothing. That's a travesty of the gift that he's given you. It's a travesty. 
So Jesus asked this question rhetorical. He says unto the disciples, have you caught anything? They answer him, no. And I'm pretty sure that those no's will have a little bit of passive-aggressive tone in it. Because they've been all night. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Then this man upon the shore says in verse 6 to the disciples, He said unto them, Cast a net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. They cast therefore, and they're not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Now, what happens here when you get into the custom and the culture is that this guy who's sitting at, 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 on the side of things, watching these men struggle all night, they're professional fishermen, they haven't caught anything, and then this guy comes along and he says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. Now, there was a reason why they were casting on one side of the boat and not the other. Because it preferenced the, the right-handed person. It was easier. So that was the way things were done. That was a tried and trusted tradition. That if you were going to go fish, and if you were going to catch, you would cast your net out one side of the boat. Then this man comes along, watching them. I mean, who is this guy? What does he know about fishing? We're the professionals. And he comes along and he says, do it the complete opposite way of how you've been trained, how you've been told, how tradition tells you, and then you'll catch something. Now, sanctified imagination again. Picture Peter. He's impulsive, right? He's got a bit of a temper on him. All night he's been out fishing. Knocking his pan in, as we say in Northern Ireland. And along comes Mr. Know-it-all and says, you've been doing it all wrong all your life. Now, when I read this, I always think about DIY in my house. Always. Because as far as I know, Claire's never worked in the construction industry. I don't even think she knows how to hold a drill. But yet she'll come in at times and tell me how to use mechanical tools that I've used pretty much all my life and say, oh, you're not doing it right, you're doing this. How do you react? You're angry, you're raging. These disciples, I'm sure, were absolutely at the point, the highest point of frustration here now. Again, sanctified imagination. Maybe they just do it to show this man up. All right, you think that's going to work? But they do it. What happens? Net, net is full. Net is full. What's going on here? Remember what I said about Galilee? Circle? Let's go to Luke chapter number 5. Luke chapter number 5. Because when this happens, when these nets are full, Luke chapter 5, and we'll look at verse 1, John starts to twig. You ever have those moments where something's happening before you and nobody else has quite twigged it, but your, your, your brain is starting to... I think I told you about the, the rooted retreat at Cloverley Hall where we had the murder mystery thing. And so we all dressed up as characters. We had a murder mystery and, and we went through the murder mystery thing with the kids and there was a killer in the room. And everybody was picking all these people and nobody, nobody got it, was getting it right. And we, the, the, the cards 
where you had to write down the name of the killer, were just about to go in, and they went in so that, you know, it was closed. And at that point, little things started twigging my mind about the night that had transpired and the things that certain people said throughout the murder mystery. And at that point, I twigged that it was Claire that was the killer. And nobody else had clocked her. I was like, I was watching it, you know, like, like a murder mystery. This is what's going on in John's mind. As, as the disciples catch and have this bountiful catch of fish, he starts to think about an event that has happened before that's similar. Luke chapter 5 and verse number 1 says this, And it came to pass, as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, the lake of Galilee, saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them, were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little for the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch into the deep, let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answered and said unto him, Master, we've told all night and have taken nothing. Sound familiar? Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes in their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of fishes which they had taken. And so it was also James and John, sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth I shall catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now you see the similarities here. Galilee, full circle. I mean, these guys had gone right back to where they were. In Luke chapter number 5, where the Lord had called them and said, you're no longer fishers of fish, you're going to be fishers of men. I'm going to use you as vehicles for my gospel truth. You're going to be my hands and my feet. That You're going to go out and you're going to tell the good news to people. And they respond, what do they do? They forsake all. But that, what does that include? It includes the profession of fishing for fish. You get into John 21... Verse number seven says, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, It is the Lord. John starts to recognize who this is on the shore. He gets his eyes off the work and his eyes onto the Lord. And he starts to see his vision becomes clear. This is the Lord. The net is full. Now the Bible says that there's 153 fish some people will say, well, what does 153 mean? Honest answer, I can't be 100% sure. But here's what I do know. That number is important in some reason. We may not get it. Some people say that at that time there were only 153 known species of fish. Maybe that's it. But I know that when Scripture gives a number like that, it means something. It meant something to them. Whatever it meant, it pointed them to Christ. Simon, being the impulsive one, jumps into the sea. He wants to be with the Lord. And you can say what you want about 
Simon Peter. But what you will find is he had a desire to be beside the Lord. And when he was closest to the Lord, that's when he had his great moments. But when he's at a distance, that's when he has his failures. There's a lesson there for us this morning. So as soon as they get to this uh, shore, you know, all the disciples are in. I want you to look at verse 12 where we have this meal upon the sand. So we have the man upon the sea, we have the man upon the shore, and then there's a meal upon the sand in verse number 12. Jesus said unto them, come and dine. And none of the disciples dare ask him, who art thou, knowing it was the Lord. Now we've talked about this before, church, that a meal is simply not a function biblically. It means so much more than just fuel. It's fellowship. Many of the covenants were put together over a meal. The Lord taught at meal times. You can see this through scripture. We don't have time. The prodigal, what happens? The father calf's killed. Why? It's a meal of reconciliation. That all in that town would see and know that there had been reconciliation between father and son. That's what the meal represented in Judaism. That when you ate with somebody and sat down, it signified the others that there was fellowship there. It's beautiful. So the meal symbolizes forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation. It symbolizes rest. It symbolizes provision. And that's what happens. Look at verse 9. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and a fish laid there on and bread. Notice, there's already fish there. Cooking. Now, did the Lord catch them himself? Did he speak them into existence? I don't know. But what I do know is, but they caught nothing without him. Because of his word, they caught a f- full load of fish, but yet actually the provision was already there. This is a lesson. This is a lesson that our God is a providing God, and he will give us what we need. But are we where, are we are where we should be? Are we out in the sea expecting God's provision and it's not coming? Why is it not coming? Because you're out in the sea. You're trusting in yourself. And actually, if we trust in the Lord, truly, fully, he will provide. What will he provide? Whatever you need. Whatever you need. Now, we're not talking Ferraris. We're not talking whatever you truly need. Are you lonely? God will provide you fellowship and friendship. Are you hurting? God will provide peace. Are you struggling in the sea? God will provide surety and steadfastness on the shore. God will do these things. But we have to draw unto him. Draw nigh unto me. And I will draw nigh unto you, saith the Lord. So here are the disciples, they've gone through all this, but yet Jesus has a meal ready. And notice in verse 13, I don't know what I can say about this to truly get this point across. Not only does Jesus provide the meal, notice what he does, verse 13. Jesus then 
comes, taketh bread, and giveth them in fish likewise. Not only to provide the meal, he serves the meal. This is the Lord of glory. These disciples are not where they should have been. They should have been on the mountaintop waiting for the mountaintop experience, which comes a little bit later on in the story. They're down by the seashore on the sea. Christ has to come down to them. The reality is that we should always go up to God. God in his grace came down to us in Calvary. But as believers that have entered into that truth, how often do we expect God to come down to us? How often does he have to come down to our level when we should be walking towards him at all times? But yet God does it. Because Christ is loving, he's compassionate, and the humility to then not rebuke them, but to serve them. These guys are hungry. All sorts of emotions going on now. And Christ just says, sit, come and dine with me. And he provides the food and he serves the food. You want to tell me that our God's just another God like all the other gods? (laughs) Not a chance. Our God is beautiful. These men, they were struggling. They have this meal upon the sand provided by the Saviour. And finally, I want you to see the message of the Saviour. What is this all about? Simply what we've said, and we're just kind of going to bring back the points that we've made. Simply this, verse 12. Jesus said unto them, Come and dine. Enter into fellowship with me. Sit with me. Enjoy me. Let me provide for you. What a message. Again, no rebuke. No, what are you doing? You stupid, stupid people. How many times do I have to tell you and show you that I am everything you need? None of that. This is grace. Somebody says, come. And that message from all those years ago is the message today. No matter where you are, what you're at, what you've done, this is what the Lord says. Come and dine with me. Rest in me. Find what you're looking for in me. So this account has a number of things to teach us. Number one, we need to be careful of grabbing hold of the things that we used to rely on. Because that's a danger for us all. And we need to guard ourselves against that. We can't find the true nourishment, the true guidance from anywhere other than Christ. So we have to guard ourselves of falling back to the old ways. Because it happens. Number two, self-effort brings us out of fellowship with God. The more we try and do things in and of ourselves, the further from God we go. That's it. That's the truth. 
Paul says in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish that a work that was begun in the Spirit, salvation, you now make perfect in the flesh? It's nonsense, is what Paul says. Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. Now we've already defined nothing, so let's not change it. But the most important message is, is the offer from the Lord this morning that he's saying to each and every one of us this morning. And it's one that we need to hear. It's one that I need to hear. That in our flesh, in our brokenness, in our sin, wherever we are, here's what the Lord says. Come and die. How beautiful is that, church? What a message from the Savior. So the message from the Savior, the message to us, the message to you is simply, where are you? Are you out at sea? Is that where you feel like you are? Get your eyes upon Christ. See him as high and lifted up and know that he can provide all that you need. And it may be a battle to get back there, to fight back to the shore, to fight against the tide, to fight against the current, to fight against the world, to fight against the flesh, to fight against your desires. But I want to say to you this morning, church, it's worth it. Because when we get to Christ, he's willing to be all in all to us. What have I said before? That our safety doesn't depend on our distance from danger, but our closeness to Christ. Here's the message. Come and dine. Stop struggling. Stop fighting. Come in and dine with the Savior. Because the Savior from John 21 is the same Savior today. And the message from John 21 is the same message today. Come and die.